All right. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Still on page 900 if you have one of the Bibles from the welcome table. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 18 through 27 today. If you remember Mark chapter 11, verse 27, all the way through um, chapter 13, verse 37, a couple chapters here, it's this, it's one long day, okay, in the temple where Jesus is just, like people are just in line. The religious leaders are just lining up to ask Jesus questions, to debate with him, to argue with him about um, political things, theological things, moral things. And trying to trap him in, uh, in an answer that, that uh, he doesn't want to give. But none of them are going to um, succeed in that, right? We, we know this by now. So this isn't new. But we need to understand who is trapping him or attempting to trap him and why. Because it will help us shape how we view Jesus even more. And how he responds to that, and it will help us grow in our own obedience to him. So last week was the Pharisees and the Herodians. Uh, Again, they're enemies of each other on most fronts, but they're united in their mutual hatred for Jesus. Not a great thing to unite over. Um, And they try and trap him in a a political question. Uh, They say, should we pay taxes or not? And Jesus' answer, if you remember, is give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's, right? They didn't see that answer coming. And then today is, is the Sadducees. They're mostly made up of priests. Uh, they're very influential in the temple. And they are going to try to trap Jesus with a theological question. And so they're going to use the old, an Old Testament marriage law uh, to try to prove that there is no resurrection. Now you might go, like, how do you get from marriage in the Old Testament to no, no resurrection? Well, they're going to get there for us. Okay? And, uh, and we're going to see how this plays out. How often do you think about the resurrection? Is it just like an Easter thing? Is it, is it something that, that you, just consumes you every single day or only when you're reminded of it? How often do you think about the resurrection? How does it shape the way you live right now? Or does it shape the way that you live right now? Is it sort of something that, that you see that that uh, we've gained the benefit of it from Christ's death and resurrection in the past, and that if there's a future uh, benefit of it uh, that's coming, or is, is there benefit to it right here and now as we live in a very broken world where there seems to be a lot of death reigning and ruling still, right? So in today's passage, Jesus is going to remind us that there is, in fact, a resurrection to come, and it has implications for us in the here and now. For those who believe in him for salvation, the resurrection that awaits us is far greater than anything that we can imagine or experience in the here and now. And that's going to be important for us to remember. So I want to read this passage in its fullness, and I want to pray that God uh, opens our eyes and stirs our hearts through it. And then we'll dig in here. So um, Mark chapter 12, verse 18. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her, and he died. 
leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Jesus spoke to them, isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Lord, we thank you that your word is faithful and true. We thank you that it never changes. We thank you that it will uh, never end. It will last forever. And we thank you, God, that your word is not uh, bound up. It's not chained. And so that even this morning as we read it, that the spirit who dwells in us is receiving it, that word in, with joy and unity with the Father and the Son and draws us in to greater unity in Christ through it. And so we pray that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things here, that you would stir our hearts with the power of God who has raised Jesus from the dead and who has sealed us for the resurrection to come through your spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I don't like false advertising. Anybody with me? You ever buy a product? I, does anybody ever buy a product because of what it actually says on the product? I, we've been trained like to just kind of overlook that, right? Like, like the deodorant that I use. I don't know if, okay, we're good for now, although... Um, it, it's like it's like guaranteed to make you not sweat or stink, right? But this is why I wear double shirts on Sunday mornings, so that you don't have to see that that product has failed, right? Um, a, a product or a company will make a claim about something, and that, then that claim turns out to be untrue. That's false advertising. And I think sometimes when we read things uh, that scripture itself claims that we don't tend to see it or experience it in our daily lives. And so um, we, we can feel like, the, like something like the resurrection is false advertising, right? But we need to understand that it's, it's not the claim that's being made that's faulty. It's our belief of that claim that's faulty, you see, we say we believe in the resurrection as Christians. That's, that's the, 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 the capstone of our faith, right? If Christ has only died, we have no hope in this world. He has to have been raised. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. And so we say this is the necessity. This is the thing that we, we must believe and agree in. But then what happens is oftentimes we live as if it's not really true in our lives, Pick one day of the week and think about how you live that day. Is it in light of the resurrection or is it surrounded and engulfed by the sin and death that's so prevalent in our world and even in our own hearts? And so this morning, the scripture itself, God's word through Mark is going to help us see that because God's scriptures and because God's power give proof of the resurrection then we ought to live in belief of the resurrection. Now, that's easy for us to say, right? Every, it makes sense, doesn't it? 
But we need to understand how this works. And so we're going to work our way through the passage here and learn from God. Mark chapter 12, verse 18 and 19. Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and questioned him. Teacher, again, reminding that they don't really have that kind of respect for him. This is a sarcastic name that they're giving. Teacher, Moses for us, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, leaving a wife behind but no child, that man should take the wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, if you remember, Mark is writing his gospel to uh, Gentile believers living in Rome. They're under uh, closer to, to uh, the, the, the persecution of Emperor Nero in the mid-60s A.D., right? Or pushing towards 70 A.D. And, um, and so they're not familiar all, with all of the Jewish things. And so he says Sadducees. Now, you might not even know th- this morning what a Sadducee is. You know Pharisees because we, we hear Pharisees all the time. And so Mark gives a little bit of a, a commentary right here in verse 18. He says, Sadducees who say there is no resurrection. This is important to the story, right? And so he's clarifying this. They say there is no resurrection. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were the two main religious groups in, uh, it, uh, at that time for the Jews, and they, they opposed each other uh, and competed for control of the temple and of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish court of the day. And the Sadducees, again, like we said in the beginning, they were associated with the priesthood, so they were particularly concerned with all things temple-related. And the temple wasn't just the place where uh, God's people would come to worship. Teaching happened in the temple. The Sanhedrin held court in the temple. Okay? And so the Sadducees were very influential in these areas, which resulted in this ongoing conflict with the Pharisees. Now, while the Pharisees held to the authority of the Old Testament scriptures, all of them, and also the oral traditions, the Sadducees were much more conservative, very much more narrowly focused. They only viewed the first five written books of the Bible as God's authoritative word, called the Torah, written by Moses. Okay? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These were their go-to sources for all of their beliefs and teachings. And as a result then, this led to a lot of discrepancies between what they believed and what the Pharisees believed. The Pharisees believed in angels and demons. The Sadducees did not. The Pharisees believed in God's sovereignty. The Sadducees believed only in man's free will. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees, like Mark says here, say there is none. They believed that when the body died, the soul died with it, and Consequently, then, no heaven, no hell, no reward, no punishment, right? All their beliefs were shaped by what they understood to be explicitly taught in the Torah. And since there was no explicit teaching about the resurrection in the Torah, they denied its reality. And in verse 19, the Sadducees use an explicit teaching from the Torah on marriage obligations in order to set up a scenario and a question designed to trap Jesus and to prove that the resurrection is a ridiculous idea. They quote from Deuteronomy 25 where Moses gives these instructions uh, about uh, uh, for preserving the family name and inheritance when a married Israelite man would die and leave his wife as a widow without children to pass on the inheritance to. 
And so the dead man's brother was supposed to marry his widow and have children with her in order to set up, a, or in order um, that, uh, that the descendants, the children, would receive the name of the deceased brother to, to sort of pass his legacy on in that sense, but also the inheritance of the deceased brother. So the brother that, that is living is, is uh, uh, stepping in, so to speak, to carry on his dead brother's legacy and inheritance. Now, it's not a way for the Israelites to encourage polygamy. It's not a way for them to encourage promiscuity. It was understood to be a way to honor the deceased man's uh, memory and to keep the Jews from intermarrying with Gentiles. It was was, was designed to keep the purity of God's people in place while still upholding the the, uh, monogamy as the marriage ideal. And so after establishing the principle from the Torah, the Sadducees give Jesus this hypothetical scenario that, that seems at first like an unsolvable riddle. Look at verses 20 through 23. There were seven brothers. The first married a woman and dying left no offspring. The second also took her and he died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. None of the seven left offspring. Last of all, the woman died too. In the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be since the seven had married her? Now, if you haven't figured it out by now, this hypothetical scenario has less to do with marriage and far more to do with the resurrection itself. When they tell Jesus, when they die or or when they rise, Mark's already told us what they believe. They don't believe this. So that's not a, a genuine question like, I want you to answer this for me. Help me understand this. Like, picture them smirking when they're asking this question, right? It's a scenario that they certainly would have used against the Pharisees who believed that the resurrection was still to come, but who also believed that the resurrection was going to be a better version of this life that included a lot of the same things that this life has to offer, including marriage, Now remember, the Sadducees are appealing to Moses' instructions here based on monogamy as the marriage ideal. The only reason a man could marry his brother's wife was because this brother was no longer living. It was till death do you part, right? And death had parted them. And so a woman could marry legally the brother because the first marriage was nullified by death and the widow was free to marry that brother uh, that was living without it being labeled as adultery. Monogamy is still the, the, held intact here. And so the scenario they come up with, it, it's brilliant because the woman legally marries seven men seven times. She marries seven times, legally according to Moses' custom. because they all died without giving her children. And and the key to the Sadducees' argument comes in the question that they ask Jesus in verse 23. They say, in the resurrection, when they rise, snicker, snicker, right? Whose wife will she be since she had married, or since the seven had married her? Now, this would be an extremely difficult question, again, for the Pharisees to answer, because they viewed the world to come as an improved version of, of this world and improved a continuation of this one. And so the Sadducees' point was this. Listen, how can one woman be married to seven men in the resurrection if monogamy is the ideal now 
and the world to come is an improved version of this one, then certainly the woman can't be married to seven men. She can't be married to more than one, right? Because that goes against the marriage ideal. So, so how then can there be a resurrection that allows that? You see their, their logic here? They're, they're set on proving that the resurrection is a ridiculous notion for anyone to believe. It's a well-crafted argument that they've used time and time again against the Pharisees, and now the Sadducees are bringing it up to Jesus in an attempt to trap him and to make him look foolish. This is what they're doing. They're trying to discredit Jesus. If Jesus agrees that there is, in fact, a resurrection, and it's simply an improved continuation of this life, then he has to find a technicality or a loophole to allow for the woman to be married to all seven men in the resurrection to come. His only other option then is to agree with the Sadducees and deny the resurrection. And these, these are at least the, the only two options in the Sadducees' minds, right? But by now we know that Jesus always has the option that the opponents never see. And he evades their trap with an answer that not only disproves their logic, but also shows the foolishness of their own beliefs. Look at verse 24. Jesus spoke to them. Isn't this the reason why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures or the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, haven't you read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Jesus pulls no punches here. He takes their supposed strengths in verse 24 and then proceeds to completely dismantle them in the next few verses here. He says the Sadducees are mistaken. The, the word, the language that Mark uses there in the Greek is similar to all the other language that he's used throughout his gospel to describe the way. Started in chapter 1, the very first couple verses. Prepare the way for the Lord. And then as they're on the way, on the, along the road, to Jerusalem. Mark's using this language to remind the reader of what it means to follow Jesus. And here Jesus says, you're way off. You're mistaken. You've gone astray. This is what that word means. And Jesus tells them that the reason they're mistaken is because they don't know the scriptures or the power of God. We need to understand this. This is like us walking across the street to the chocolate company, kicking the door in and going, you guys don't know a thing about caramel apples or chocolate. Okay? Don't do that. The scriptures and power were two things that the Sadducees majored in. They considered them to be their, their wheelhouse, okay? They, they prided themselves in their strict adherence to the Torah, and they confidently exerted their power in the temple and in the Sanhedrin as leaders of Israel. These were the things that they knew how to do. At least they thought they did. Jesus' statement in verse 24 is essentially saying that they've gone astray in these things. You guys, you're way off course. This is not the way. Remember when the Pharisees and the Herodians last week, again, sarcastically but truthfully said, Jesus teaches the way of God truthfully? He's doing it here 
He's pointing out, listen, guys, you're on a whole different road. You think you know this, but isn't this why you're mistaken? You don't know the scriptures, and you don't know the power of God. Their whole belief system is off course, and they're not following the way of God truthfully. Look at what Jesus says in verse 25. He says, when, when they rise from the dead. He doesn't say, if they rise from the dead. Jesus is speaking of the resurrection as a reality, not a possibility. He's not being sarcastic here. He's being truthful. Listen, when they rise, not if they rise, when they rise, he's speaking truthfully because Jesus knows the power of God to raise people from the dead. Don't forget, three times already in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus predict his own death and what? His resurrection. He never just tells his followers that he's going to die. He always tells them that he's going to live. And each time he told his disciples about it, he spoke of it as a reality, not a possibility. Jesus knows the power of God to raise people from the dead because he is God. And not only does he know the power of God to raise the dead, but he also knows the power of God to create an eternal life that is far, far more than just a continuation and a better version of this life. And so he answers the Sadducees' question by saying that in the resurrection, people neither marry nor are given in marriage, but instead they are like the angels in heaven. Now this doesn't mean that when you die, you become an angel. Okay? The Bible does not tell us that anywhere. And Jesus is not saying that here. He says we will be like the angels in heaven who have no need for marriage because they have no need for procreation and propagation of their kind. Neither will we, and that's because the world to come is not simply a continuation of this one carrying on everything that we're doing here. It's a new heaven and a new earth in which we will live completely changed lives. 1 Corinthians 15, I want to encourage you to read it this week. This is a pivotal passage for us as proclaimers of the resurrection of Christ. Paul says this in verse 40 through 44. He says, There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. We got a glimpse of that in the transfiguration of Jesus, right? Back in, in chapter 9. There's a splendor of, a sun, of the sun, another of the moon, and another of the stars. In fact, one star differs from another star in splendor. So it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown a natural body, raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. And a little further down in, in the same chapter, he says, what I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery, he says. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. 
You know what's not raised in the resurrection? Death. Sin. In the resurrection to come, we will not continue as we are now. We will be changed. We will be clothed with immortality and incorruption like the angels. And the present order of creation will be changed along with us. Read Romans 8. talks about it. The creation is groaning with us, waiting for the sons of God to be made known. So that creation itself can be released from the curse. So in the resurrection to come, marriage will no longer be needed. Notice that Jesus further drives home the reality of the resurrection by affirming the existence of angels. Did you catch that in there? Something the Sadducees denied, along with the resurrection. He's showing the Sadducees again how far off they've gone. Reroute, guys. This is not the way. And after he shows them the power of God to bring about an entirely new and better eternity, Jesus declares the resurrection as a reality shown from the scriptures themselves that the Sadducees claim to know so well. You notice where he goes? Back to the book of Moses. In the Torah. He goes to Exodus chapter 26 where the the burning bush passage Jesus knows the Sadducees have read it, but he's making the point that while they may be familiar with the passage, they truly don't understand it. Listen, you guys have read this. You've memorized it. You know what it says, but you don't know what it says. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, chances are you've heard the story of Moses and the burning bush, or you've seen it, you know, Charlton Heston in the Ten Commandments portray it, right? Um, Moses is up on the mountain when God appears to him from a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. Can we all just agree that that's the power of God right there? Have you ever lit a bush on fire and it didn't burn up into ash? Let's recognize what we see here. And, and, and so he sees God's power in, in the burning bush, and then God speaks to Moses, makes himself known, and says, I'm sending you to my people in Egypt, and I'm going to use you to rescue them from the hand of Pharaoh and bring them out of slavery and into freedom in the promised land. This is God bringing Moses into his plan of redemption as Israel's deliverer. But notice what part of the story Jesus focuses on here when he talks to the Sadducees about it. In verse 26, he points to the way God revealed himself to Moses. What did he say? He said, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by the time we get to Moses, they're long dead and gone. But God says, I am the God, not I was the God. I am the God of Abraham Isaac, and Jacob. It's present tense, meaning that although Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have died, they are still alive even right now, even now as we talk about them. And they are enjoying the blessings of the covenant that God has made with them through Christ. Jesus makes this clear in verse 27. He says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Guys, you're way off course. 
You're way off course. Why are they badly mistaken? Because denying the resurrection is denying the only hope that you have of enjoying the covenant blessings of God through Jesus Christ. The ultimate answer to their question will be the resurrection of Jesus himself in a few days from now. You see, the ones who say there is no resurrection will seek to put an end to Jesus' life once and for all. And when the stone closes over the grave, they're going to believe that they've succeeded in that. When they witness his death on the cross and then, and then the stone rolls, away, or rolls over the grave, right? They're going to think, well, I don't care how he answered our question. We won. We won. But three days later, to their dismay and their disbelief, guess what? The tomb is empty, guys, and you're still way off course. Jesus fulfilled the scriptures and gave testimony to the power of God to raise the dead. The stone was rolled away. The tomb is empty. Jesus doesn't simply teach the resurrection. Listen, he is the resurrection. This is the crux of our faith. Believer, Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and everyone who believes in him has already experienced a spiritual resurrection. Your heart was dead, and Christ made it alive and gave you the faith to believe in his sacrificial death and resurrection. He brought our dead hearts to life. You have experienced already wondrous benefits of the resurrection of Jesus. He can't bring our dead hearts to life if he himself isn't living. And even though we may physically die, we will also be physically raised with him to live forever with him in his eternal kingdom. Back to 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12 through 19. Paul says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, Guess who he's talking to? There is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain. What are we doing then? And so is your faith. Moreover, if we are found to be false, moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we're spreading this around. Jesus is raised. And we're making God out to be a liar and we're liars ourselves. This is what Paul's saying. Because we've testified wrongly about God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead aren't raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You see where he's going? It's just a circular thing. Like, guys, listen. And this is the danger. If Christ hasn't been raised, Paul says, you are still dead in your sins. You are still dead in your sins. Those then, Paul continues, who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Without the resurrection, we have no hope. It doesn't matter if Jesus died for our sins. If he doesn't raise, our faith is worthless. But because Jesus rose from the dead, we've been given new 
life through faith in him and we've been set free from the power of sin and death because we are no longer in our sins through faith in Christ. We've been forgiven through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. He took our place and our punishment there. It makes absolutely no sense for us to believe that Jesus Christ died our death on the cross if we don't also believe that he rose to raise us and give us life. You see, we may believe, we may say we believe in the resurrection. Certainly we don't want to say we don't, right? But it's easy to functionally deny it by the way we live our lives every day, isn't it? Go back a couple chapters to chapter 9. Peter and James and John literally witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus. They saw him in his glorified state. They got a glimpse of the resurrection to come. They saw Moses and Elijah standing there, living, breathing, talking with Jesus. And yet, even after the resurrection, it says that there were many who still doubted. They still had to process this. They still had to wrestle this and figure out this is really true. Now what do we do with this? It got a whole lot easier when the Spirit came and empowered them. And guess what? If you're a follower of Christ, you have the Spirit who empowers you. Not only to know this as truth, but to walk in it. Surely Mark's readers could also relate to the struggle of, of functionally living out this belief of the resurrected Christ, even as they continue to be persecuted and killed by Emperor Nero because of their faith, we too can find it difficult to see the power of Christ's resurrection in our own lives because we don't often feel like we've really experienced it in the here and now or witnessed that power, right? But could it be that we aren't experiencing the power of God in our lives because we're looking in the wrong place? Maybe we're waiting for some kind of miracle or or we're waiting for some sort of visual sign. Perhaps we're more like the Sadducees than we think we are and we're not seeing God's power because we're not seeing the scriptures and truly listening to the testimony that they give themselves to the glory and the power of God. So when we don't do that, we don't share the gospel with others because we forget that it is the power of God for salvation for all those who believe. Romans chapter 1 verse 16. We forget that salvation itself is a spiritual resurrection where God in his power takes our dead hearts and gives them life through faith in Christ. That's Ephesians chapter 2 verses 1 through 10. Or we don't fight hard against sin and temptation because we forget that God strengthens us with all power according to his glorious might so that we might have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled us to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. This is Colossians chapter 1, verses 11 and 12, where we get so overwhelmed and so anxious about all of the current uncertainties in this life that we take our eyes off the absolute certainty that Christ is right now seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father, fully alive and ruling in power, and our lives are hidden in God with Christ. Because we died to sin, and when Christ, who is our life, 
appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. That's Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. You see, if we don't know the scriptures, we don't know the power of God. That's why we need the scriptures every day of our lives and not just on Sunday mornings. That's why you have to have the word to look at on your own and not just take my word for it. That's why the Bereans were more noble than the Thessalonians. They depended on God and what God said through his servants. But always double check to make sure that's what the word actually said. We need the scriptures every day and we need them for the rest of our lives. We live in belief of the resurrection when we live in belief of the scriptures. Scripture and the power of God determine our be- whether or not our beliefs are true and good or badly mistaken and foolish. So we have to hold our beliefs up to the truth and the authority of God's word and change our beliefs when they don't line up with what scripture says. We must not be guilty of not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. Do you believe all scripture is God-breathed? Do you believe every part of it is true and comes from a good and holy and infinite and righteous and loving and grace, gracious and merciful and just God? Those things aren't separate They're all encompassing of who he is. Or do you reject parts of it and de-emphasize the supernatural elements in it? Listen, misinterpreting the scriptures inevitably leads us to a distorted view of God and a denial of his power. And eventually to a denial of the gospel itself. So we need to constantly be conformed to the word of God, humbly receiving it as James says, the implanted word of God, letting the spirit of God who gives us the wisdom that we need in order to understand the heart of God as we read the word of God conform us to the son of God. And let me just say this about marriage. For some, the thought that we won't be married in the resurrection might be a relief. Okay? To others, it may feel more like a punishment than than a blessing. Maybe you can't imagine that, right? But we need to understand this. Even though eternity and its experiences will be different than what we know and experience here on earth, we can be confident that it will never be less than what we know and experience here on earth. It will be infinitely different. And gloriously more. And the thought that we all need to fix our minds and hearts on is that marriage as we know it in its earthly sense will no longer be needed because we will know it in its fullest sense as Christ's bride, purified by our bridegroom and presented to the Father. In the glory of the Son. Paul says that marriage between a husband and wife on this earth, it's a mystery. Why is it a mystery? Because we can't quite figure it out. Right? 
Because it reveals the relationship between Jesus, the bridegroom, and his church, the bride. He's the bridegroom. We're his bride and he's preparing us for the wedding. And in the resurrection, we will forever be united to him and death will not do us part because death will be no more. Listen to this promise in Revelation 21. These are Jesus' words through John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I also saw a holy city in the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He's come back. And he will live with them. And they will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne, we know who that is, said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, write, write, because these words are faithful and true. This is the scripture This is the word of God. It's true. There's no false advertising here. And then he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowards, the faithless, the detestable, the murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Their share will be the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. These are also the faithful and true words of God. This is the power of God, and this is the truth of Scripture. Do you believe this? Do you stop short of that last verse? The Sadducees were faithless. They were cowards. They were detestable. They were murderers. Look, there's not a sin that Christ won't forgive if you come to him. But if you reject him, what does Paul say? You're still dead in your sins. And you need life. You need resurrection. The Sadducees said there was no resurrection, but they're badly mistaken. They're way way off. Though they don't believe in it, they still experienced it nonetheless. The moment they died on earth was the moment they believed in eternity because that's the moment that they came face to face with the Christ whom they crucified. With the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. But they did not experience the blessings of the new covenant. Instead, They were condemned to an eternal life of conscious torment and divine punishment that is right and good because God is holy and just and because they rejected the Christ, the one who rose in his resurrection. 
their inheritance is the second death. And that is the resurrection that awaits everyone who rejects Christ. It's the resurrection to eternal judgment. Not a resurrection to eternal life. So if you're rejecting Christ, listen, if you're, if you're, if you're ashamed of your sin, oh, would you know that Christ has borne that shame on the cross? There's no embarrassment with Jesus. He already knows. So you can come to him and you can bring that to him and confess that and your need for him and, and, and seek his forgiveness. But if you reject the only one who can forgive you, you are still dead in your sins and you need life. So I beg you this morning to listen to the scriptures and see the power of God and see that you're badly mistaken. It's okay to admit that every one of us in here who's a follower of Jesus had to come to that place. And it's so freeing. Look to Christ in the gospel. See the power of God for salvation for all who believe. Christ died for the forgiveness of sinners like you and me, and he rose so that we too can rise and experience the blessings and the presence of the living God. You simply cannot be a follower of Jesus and say there is no resurrection. But listen, it's possible for us as Christians to struggle to live in light of the resurrection. We all know this. So we must continue to grow in our understanding of it. And we do that by learning of its power through the scriptures. And applying those truths we read to our everyday lives. We may, may we never be found guilty of not knowing the scriptures or the power of God. Instead, may the scriptures fuel our lives and our obedience to the risen Christ until we too are resurrected with him in his kingdom forever. When we close this today, my prayer is that we go home and we can't wait to open it again. And rehearse and rehearse and rehearse the glorious truths that we find here. They're life-giving. I want to close this in prayer with Scripture. I think this is a fitting way to do it. The author of Hebrews in chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. This is a prayer right here. Now, may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, equip you with everything good to do his will, working in us what is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen.